you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning from verse 6 down through verse 10. You'll find some notes there on the end of the rows that you can follow along with. Now, Paul's point in this whole section that we mentioned last time is this. The church makes the gospel visible. The church makes the gospel visible to the world around us. So keep that in mind. We'll read through and then we'll do a little bit of review and then we'll get started with verse 6. From verse 1, we read these words. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Pray with me now. Heavenly Father, it is our great hope that You will deliver us from the wrath that is to come. We know that we are fully deserving of that wrath, but we trust in you at this time, because your word tells us that you have absorbed that wrath on our behalf on the cross. And we thank you, Lord, for the salvation found in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Open our hearts and open the minds of our hearts and this, at this time, Lord, to receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul began this letter we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, beginning here by telling the Thessalonians just what a joy they are to him. This whole letter is just full of affection and good feelings from Paul towards the Thessalonians. We talked about the Thessalonian church and how these two churches in the northern region here, of Philippi and Thessalonica, those two churches are the two most beloved churches that Paul planted. Both of these churches, just the gospel just took root and just took off and the people were converted and they had great affection for Paul and Paul had great affection for them. These are the only two letters we have of Paul's in which he wrote to churches in which he did not mention that he was an apostle. Every other letter that Paul writes to a church, he tells them, I'm an apostle by the authority of the Lord, that God has invested this authority in me because to some degree his apostleship was in question. The church in Corinth and the church in Ephesus, to some degree, Paul had to establish himself as an apostle of the Lord, but not for the church in Thessalonica and not for the church of Philippi, because there was just such an affection and such a respect for Paul. And so that affection is all throughout this letter. Paul was truly blessed by this church, by this small body of believers in Thessalonica. He couldn't even stay with them very long, only just a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, and then he was chased out of town 
by the non-believing Jews in Thessalonica, but still he's received word from Timothy that they're not only are they doing fine, they're doing better than fine. They're doing wonderful. The gospel has taken root. And so Paul's now going to talk about some of the things that he's heard and what a blessing they are to his heart. So then we mention how Paul gives thanks for them constantly. He remembers the, the three pillar things of their faith, of living out their faith, their, uh, their faith, their love, and their hope in Jesus Christ. And then he says these words that we looked at last time. He calls them, first of all, brothers loved by God. In other words, you are the ones. You are among those people that God has chosen to place His love on from eternity past. You are beloved by God. God has, God has placed His love upon you. What a thing. What a thing to meditate on. He says, brothers beloved by God, we know that you are His chosen. So we talked about that last time of just what a blessing it is to not only to be the chosen people of God, but Paul says, I know this without a doubt, without any doubt in my mind, I know that you are God's chosen people. And then he's going to talk about, from there through the end of the chapter, he's going to talk about how it is that he knows that these are the chosen people of God. Last time we talked about two things. First of all, Paul says, I know that you're chosen by God because of the power of the Spirit that we felt as we were preaching and ministering and teaching to you. So the Spirit was active and empowering Paul's words as he was preaching, as Timothy and, and Silas were preaching and teaching. And Paul says, I sensed that and I know that and I know that the Spirit was active as I was teaching and ministering to you. And so that tells me that you are also the people of God. And then he also says, we looked at last time, how they received these afflictions, these persecutions with joy. So the Thessalonian believers are being persecuted there by the, the culture around them. We remember from the story, for example, Acts chapter 17 in Ephesus, when the Ephesian, Ephesian Christians come to faith in Jesus, then of course they put away their idols and everybody stops buying these idols of Artemis. And all the idol makers and the people that are invested in that kind of business, they get really upset about that because the people are turning away from idolatry. And the same thing is going on in Thessalonica. Those people who are not converted to Christ are not happy at all that others are. And so they're being persecuted for that. They're receiving afflictions for all of that. And Paul says, this is another evidence of the Spirit in you, another evidence that you are the chosen of God. A lot of people can be persecuted. And you can even be persecuted in the name of Jesus. You can claim to be a follower of Jesus and be persecuted for that. But... It requires the work of the Spirit in order for you to be persecuted for the name of Jesus and receive that with joy. That is a work of the Spirit. And so Paul says, I know because you received these afflictions in the Spirit with joy and the Spirit of God was, was manufacturing, was creating in you joy in the midst of your persecutions, then this is evidence for me that you truly are the people of God. So all that brings us up to where we are now. Paul's going to talk about some other things that he sees and again, the point of this whole section is to keep in mind this. The church, in this instance, the church in Thessalonica, is making the gospel visible for the world around them. You know, the gospel is words. The gospel is good news. The gospel is an announcement. It's the announcement that we are sinners, and although we are sinners and our sin has separated us from God, Jesus Christ has bore the penalty for that sin on the cross, and by faith and repentance, we receive His righteousness. We receive forgiveness of our sins. Our sins were paid for on the cross. And then we have restored relationship with God. That is the good news of the gospel. And that news, that, that those words of good news can't be seen. They're, they're invisible. So it is the church that makes what is not visible to be visible. 
what cannot be seen to be seen. It's the church that does that. Kind of like in 1 John 4, verse 10. Remember what, Paul, what John says there in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. He says, how can you love God whom you've not seen when you don't love your brother that you do see? John's point there is that there is this visible type of a manifestation for, for that which is not visible. The one who has God living in him is sort of like a visible manifestation of the God that we can't see. And so John says, how can you love the God that you can't see when you don't love his visible manifestation in the brother in Christ, right? And so in a similar way, what Paul is saying to to the Thessalonians here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that you see, but you're making that which is not seen to be seen by the power of your changed life. So let's pick up there from verse 6. Verse 6, Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You know, in our culture today, the idea of individuality is blown way out of proportion, is it not? Our culture worships the idea of individuality, of uniqueness, of diversity. Don't get me wrong, God created a very diverse world. He created all of us as unique individuals. There's no one else like you. All of this is true. But in our society today, we take that and overemphasize it to a sinful degree, right? God created us all as individuals. And that's a good thing, right? We should praise God for our individuality. We should praise God for the diversity of His creation, the diversity of created things, the diversity of created life, the diversity of this planet, the diversity of humans. We should glorify God for that. But we take that to a sinful degree, don't we? If we take something good and we turn it into an idol or we turn it into something sinful by overemphasizing it. Because you see, Scripture does not emphasize our individuality nearly as much as it emphasizes our need to be imitators. That's what Scripture says to us over and over again. You need to imitate other people that are godly examples. You need to be imitators of them. I'm not, any, I'm not aware of anywhere that the Scriptures say, you are this unique individual, there's nobody else like you. Although that's true, we believe that to be true, that's not what Scripture emphasizes. Scripture emphasizes that you need to be imitators of those who are godly. Take a look at some of the examples from the, from the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or Galatians 4, verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. Brothers, join in imitating me. What have you learned and received and heard and seen in me? Practice these things. Or, as he says to the Thessalonians in the second letter, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, but instead give yourselves as an example to imitate. So the Scriptures call us to imitate godly examples of believers. Again, we glorify God for our diversity and our uniqueness, but the Scriptures call us to, to seek out godly examples, godly leaders in the church, godly people, and to imitate them. And he says to the Thessalonians, this is exactly what you've done. You've done this. You have imitated us. We came to you. We were with you for a very short time, but yet you have become imitators of what you saw in us, the Christ-like qualities that you saw in us. You became imitators of that. So you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. And that's how they are imitators of the Lord. 
They're imitating the Lord by imitating how Jesus received affliction and He received it with joy. The letter to the Hebrews tells us that, that for the joy that was set before Him, Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus didn't go to the cross just hating what He was here to do and just wishing He didn't have to do this and just unhappy about it. He goes to the cross with joy because He receives the affliction that was meant for us and He bears it Himself. So our example in this is Jesus as He receives this affliction with joy. So they become imitators of Jesus in that way. How, are, how is it that we are imitators of Jesus? In what ways are we imitators of Jesus? Do you know? We are to imitate Jesus in, like we just said, of receiving affliction for joy, particularly affliction for the name of Jesus. We are also imitators of Jesus' love. We're imitators of Jesus' obedience. And we're imitators of Jesus' prayer. Those are the things that we imitate Jesus in. You hear this all, all the time in the, in the churches. Be imitators of Jesus. Be, be like Jesus. Be Christ-like. Those are the ways that we are like Jesus. Receiving persecution with joy, obedience, prayer, and love. So the Thessalonians are doing just that. Paul says you are imitators of Jesus. But then he goes on to say, verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So the imitators are now worthy of being imitated. Isn't that something? These Thessalonian believers, this tiny little brand new six-month-old church, they are now so Christ-like in their behavior and in their treatment of others, and in their love for others, and in their receiving of persecution with joy. They're so Christ-like that Paul says, you're worthy of others imitating you. And not just others in Thessalonica, but others all over the whole region of Macedonia and over the whole region of Achaia. In other words, this whole country that's now modern Greece, that, that encompasses, we believe, about five churches at this point, in this, the point that Paul writes the letter. So Paul says, you are worthy of being examples to others. Now that is something else. That these brand new baby believers, they don't even have leadership there because Paul, Timothy, and Silas have all had to leave. And they're just this little group of Christians that have known Jesus for just a few short months and they have grown so rapidly in their faith that Paul says, you are worthy to be in this little tiny little church. They probably don't even have a website. Probably don't even have a an Awana's pro program up and going yet, or haven't built a sanctuary, none of those things, but yet Paul says you're an example to everyone. You remember what Paul says to the, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8? How he's trying to encourage the Corinthians to be gracious, cheerful givers? And you remember the example that he uses? He says, think about the Macedonians or the Thessalonians. He says, think about them. In their poverty, they are giving generously. So, they are examples to, to all around. And we're called to be examples too, right? But we're uncomfortable with that. Is anybody comfortable with the idea of being examples to others? I'm not. It's a very uncomfortable thing to think about being examples to other people. But the Scriptures call us to be an example to others. And here's why I think that we are uncomfortable with being examples for others. We are uncomfortable with the idea of being examples because we know our own hearts and we know our own thoughts. And so when we think about being examples to others, we think about those motives that aren't pure. We think about those thoughts that aren't pure. We think about all those things and we say, I'm not worthy of being an example for others because I see myself, right? Like Paul says to, the, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, I know my own heart, I know my own thoughts, and so therefore I am the worst sinner that I know. 
So we know that about ourselves, and that makes us uncomfortable being examples. But you know what? The Scriptures never tell us to be examples of other people's thought life. The Scriptures tell us to be examples, to follow the example of other believers' behavior and outward deeds, right? Those are the examples that we are to follow. And so those are the examples that we are to set. So in faith, we should embrace the idea that we are to be examples to others and we are to follow the examples, the godly examples of others, in their actions that we can see. Remember, this whole section is about the church making the gospel what? Visible. And so what do you see the Thessalonian believers doing? Imitate that. What do you see Paul doing? Imitate that. You can't see Paul's heart, so you can't imitate that. And you shouldn't. You can't see Paul's thoughts, so you can't and shouldn't imitate that either. Who's the one person's thoughts that we're told to imitate? Jesus, right? Philippians, we just read Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself humble, right? Jesus' thoughts, Jesus' heart, Matthew 11. Jesus says, take your yoke, take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly of heart, right? It's Jesus' thoughts and Jesus' heart that we're to imitate. But then when we see godly actions and godly deeds by other believers, that's our example. And likewise, we are to set those examples for others. So here's what we're left with. We're left with, number one, by faith, embrace the idea that the Scriptures call us to be examples. And so endeavor to be examples in our behavior. But then also, prayerfully and in the power of the Spirit, ask God to give you the mind of Christ so that those good deeds that you do, that you know in your heart, you know, my motives weren't really pure in doing that, or, or your thought life that you struggle with, with maintaining purity there, pray that in the power of the Spirit that God would give you, like He says, the mind of Christ and the motives of Christ and the pure heart of Christ. We see good deeds by others, we imitate those, and we pray for the mind of Christ also. And Paul says this is exactly what you're doing. You're, you have become examples to others. Do you know that this is the only occasion in all of Scripture in which a church is said to be an example? Isn't that something? The only example in which, which Scripture says, this whole church is an example to you. That's something else, right? So he says, you've been an example not only to the local people there in Thessalonica, but all of Macedonia, all of Achaia, verse 8. For not only has the word of, Christ, of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth, that word sounded forth literally means to trumpet. These Thessalonian believers aren't just soaking in the teaching of Paul. They're not just gathering together and just receiving. They are blasting the gospel out to everybody they know. So much so that Paul uses a word that's, that would be like blasting a trumpet, that you have sounded the gospel everywhere. People all over the region are hearing the gospel because you're telling everybody that you know. What a, what a thing that is. And so not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Now by that, Paul doesn't mean that he doesn't need to preach the gospel to anybody. He doesn't need to, to go around preaching or nobody else needs to preach the gospel because everybody's heard it and so they don't need to say anything else. What he means is the power of the gospel to change people's lives 
has been seen so clearly and so widely in the Thessalonian believers that everywhere that Paul goes and he starts preaching or teaching to people, witnessing to people, and he's, and he's saying to them, listen, the gospel has the power to change your life. Let me tell you about these Thessalonian believers. Let me just tell you about what the power of the gospel has done in their life. And people say, no, 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 hang on, Paul. I've already heard about that. I've heard about those Thessalonian believers. I've heard about how the gospel has turned their life around. And so Paul says, I don't need to tell people because they've, they've seen how your lives validate the gospel. How the change that has come over you shows the power of the gospel to change people's lives. So everywhere I go and I start to tell people, listen, let me give you an example of the life-changing power of the gospel. And they say, oh, you're going to talk about the Thessalonians, aren't you? Because we've heard about them. Now, that's quite an example, isn't it? For they themselves, meaning the people that Paul goes around and, and talks to, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So everybody knows how Paul, Timothy, and Silas were received by the Thessalonian believers in Thessalonica. That means, as he's going to go on to say, how you turn from God to serve, or how you turn from, the, from idols to serve the living God. So everybody has heard, yeah, the Thessalonian believers, we heard how they reacted to you and your gospel. They turned from their idols and the idolatrous behavior that goes along with all that. They turned from that and they turned to the living God. We've heard about how they received you. That they, return, they, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The idea of idolatry is one that we... I think struggle with to really understand and to really take root in our lives and our understanding today, this idea of idolatry. It's all over Scripture. Ancient people, even modern people today in some parts of the, of the world, have this physical form of idolatry. And we think of ancient people worshiping statues and everything, and somehow that seems disconnected. But we know that there's this idea of heart idols, and, and sometimes we sort of wrestle with how that, what that really means to, to me in my life. But here's the thing to understand about idolatry, whether it's ancient idolatry or modern idolatry, whatever type of idolatry we talk about. Here's the thing to understand. Idolatry is always about replacing the goodness of God with the goodness of earthly things. That's always at the root of it. The root of idolatry is always about replacing God with some good earthly thing that He has given to us. So ancient idolatry, you know, there was the, the visible statues and symbols of that. But what ancient idolatry was all about was that people wanted, well, they wanted in their lives the same thing that we want. They wanted peace. They wanted security. They wanted prosperity. They wanted health. They wanted fertility. They wanted basically the same things that modern people want. And idolatry saw those things as being available to them outside of God. Like there would be the, the idol of fertility, the God of fertility, or the God of the harvest, right? And so people would believe that these things could be received outside of God. And that's the whole root of idolatry. And it's the whole root of modern idolatry as well. It's the replacing of God's goodness with earthly goodness. The replacing of God with the things that God has made. And so modern people may not have the little statues and everything in our homes that we worship, but we still have hearts that try to replace God's goodness with earthly things. We still want peace. We still want security. We still want happiness. We still want fulfillment. We still want purpose in life. We still want satisfaction. We still want good marriages. We still want good children. We still want good futures. 
All those things are still true. And we have these hearts that just like ancient people try to replace those things that come from God with idols. So Paul says to them, here's an evidence that the Spirit of God is in you, that you're God's chosen people because you turned from idols to the living God. The same thing is true for us. If the Spirit of God is in us, then we also turn from idols to the living God. So how is it that we know what we are turning from? What are the idols of our life? Because they're not visible like they were for the Thessalonians. It's really important for us as believers in Jesus Christ to become skillful at asking ourselves certain questions that help us to see and to identify the idols of our lives. To identify those things that we try to replace God with. And I just want to kind of share some questions with you. And what I want you to do is not necessarily focus on the actual questions, but just try to, just try to see the idea behind some of the questions that we can ask ourselves that helps us to start thinking in terms of putting, putting a face on those things that we try to replace God with. For example, a really good question to ask yourself is, what do you think about when you don't have to think about anything? When you're tired, maybe you're on a long drive and your mind is wandering, and you're, or there's not something in front of you that you have to think about, and you can just sort of, like we like to say, veg out, where does your mind go? What do you dream about the future? What is it in the future that you sort of think to yourself, if this could work out, then my life would be really good? What do you place stock in in the future? What do you look forward to happening in the future? What is it that brings you pleasure? What is it that brings you into depression? What brings about the blues? What will send you into a period of, of being really blue? What is it that when you're denied that thing will, will make you depressed? That's another good question to ask. Or here's another really helpful question. What is it that in order to get it, you're willing to hurt people? What are you willing to hurt others in order to get? Or what do you hurt others as a result of den- being denied that? What is it that when you're denied having it, you hurt others? What is it that you see as non-negotiable for your happiness? What is it in your life that you say to yourself, you know, I could be happy without this, I could manage without that, I could be happy with that, but if I don't have this, I don't see how I could be happy. Right? What is it that you're willing to make big sacrifices for? Now, some of those questions are not necessarily black and white. You know, like, for example, what are you willing to make big sacrifices for? If you identify something that you're willing to sacrifice for, that doesn't necessarily mean that's an idol, right? Because we sacrifice for godly things, too. But see, the idea behind that is trying to get into the bottom corners of your heart and uncover those things which your heart wants to worship outside of God. And those kinds of questions can just help keep you thinking about what is it that my heart really longs for that's not Jesus? What is it that, that I'm really looking to for happiness, for purpose, for, for future, for all? The, what is it that I'm really looking to as my God outside of Jesus? And these aren't the kinds of questions that you ask yourself one time. And oh, Yeah, I asked myself all those questions three weeks ago. I'm done. We, we ask ourselves these questions all the time. I ask myself these sorts of questions regularly. Usually I don't like the answers because they can reveal to me what it is that I need to turn from. So that's the whole point. 
When we get skillful at seeing what is it that my heart really loves outside of Jesus, what do I, replace, what do I try to replace Jesus with? When we start to see that, then the question is, is it fair to say that the Gospel is empowering me to turn from those things? Is that fair to say? Is the Gospel giving me the power to turn from those? Is the Gospel making those things less attractive in my life? Is the Gospel putting some of those good things more in proportion for me? Is the Gospel empowering me to turn from that? Because you see, that's what Paul's getting at. Paul's not talking about the Thessalonian believers went and broke their idols and and threw them out of the house. He's talking about in their hearts, they turned from those things that they had replaced God with. And he's saying this is evidence that you're God's chosen people. So as God's chosen people, is it true for us to say, you know, not perfectly, not completely, but I see how the gospel is empowering me to turn from those things that, you know what, used to be a lot more important to me than they are now. Or now in my life, there are far less things that I see as non-negotiable to my happiness than, than it used to be. And I see how the gospel is working in my heart and loosening those idols and helping me to one by one turn from them and turn to the living God. This is the power of the gospel in the lives of the... Because remember, this whole section is about the Thessalonian believers are making the gospel visible to those around them. They are turning from the idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. You know, the world tells us all those things that we want, peace, security, happiness, comfort, purpose, happiness, all those things that every human heart wants. The world, Satan, and sin all tell us you should have those things right now. Isn't that true? Doesn't your heart tell you that? Doesn't the world around you tell you that? That there is no reason for you to wait for the happiness that you deserve right now. There's no reason for you to wait for the fulfillment that you deserve right now. There's no reason for you to wait for peace. There's no reason for you to wait for any good thing. That's what sin, Satan, and the world all tell us. But the Scriptures tell us that God promises us to us not only those things, but far, far, far more. But most of those things aren't meant for right now. Those who wait upon the Lord, Isaiah 40 tells us, will mount up with wings like eagles. The Scriptures promise us as we follow Jesus in this life, we will have joy. The Thessalonians part of their evidence for being converted was that they had joy in their persecution. So the Scriptures promise us those things now in a certain measure. But they say to us that those who wait upon the Lord, they will truly find all these things given to them in abundance in the next life as we wait upon the Lord. Because the world tells you, the world encourages you to be impatient. And the Scriptures teach us to wait upon the Lord. Pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that You are truly worth waiting for. We thank You, Lord, that right now in this world, as we follow Christ, we can truly say that this is the least joy we'll ever have for eternity. 
We will never be less joyful. We will never be less content, less satisfied, less happy than we are right now. We only have better to look forward to. Thank you, Lord, for the evidence of the, of the conversion in the hearts of the Thessalonians. And thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel that changed their life. And we just pray that these scriptures would help us to discern that same power in, at work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, our Lord. Amen. you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.